This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Jericho Brown, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, finalist for the National Book Award, professor at Emory and running the creative writing program there too. He's also the editor of a new book about craft. Yes, the craft of writing. It's called How We Do It. So we're going to talk about Jericho's poetry in this episode, but we're also going to talk about the craft of writing. And you did this in conjunction with the Hurston Wright Foundation. And I think there might be some folks who don't know the foundation, even though it's named for a couple of writers we all know and love. But I'm hoping, Jericho, you'll start there and we can just introduce everyone to the Hurston Wright Foundation. I'm happy to talk about the Hurston Wright Foundation. They don't employ me, but... <laughs> mm-hmm. I do feel that I would not exist if that foundation did not exist. Thanks to Marita Golden, its founder. They have workshops, they have prizes, they everything they can for people in Black literature, and they keep their thumb on the pulse of what's going on in um, African-American literature in particular, and they find ways to help train and reward those who are doing what they do, uh, who know how we do it, uh, I would like to say. And I really appreciate them. When I was a very young person, I had a workshop with them for a week in Washington, D.C. And it was one of the the best experiences of my life. I went and I studied with Nikki Finney. We were young people living in the dorms at Howard University. And uh, what I remember most, I hope I don't start crying. We just started. Um, But what I remember most about that workshop is uh, that's where I met my very good friend, Camila Aisha Moon, the wonderful poet. Miss Moon, as we like to call her, she became my friend and she was my friend then all the way to the end of her life very recently. And uh, I'm always so happy to say that in this world of writers, there is community. And because there is community, uh, you meet people who end up being your brothers and your sisters. Uh, And when I say that, I mean that. I mean that the relationship that I have, and I'm saying that in present tense, but the relationship I have with people like Camila Aisha Moon, Douglas Kearney, Mindy Lewis, Obadike, those people that I first met uh, when I was trying to be a poet, (laughs) those people uh, have have walked, uh, I might not talk to them every day, but that they walk with me every day. So that's that's what Hurston Wright is. It is a place that helps to build community. It is a place that helps to connect you with the people who will be some of your best friends for the rest of your life. And it is the place that helped to sponsor the fact of this new book that I'm very proud of. Uh, Talk about building community. This book is an opportunity for us to further reach out beyond those who can come to DC, beyond those who might win or finalize for a Hearst and Wright Award, a way of stretching our arms out to make that community broader and to help people build community where they are. Uh, I have found that people who have this book are people who have this book are finding one another and having discussions about this book and finding ways to create writing groups together, finding ways to hold one another accountable. Uh, for their writing. And what I really love about what this book has engendered in other people is that it's lit the fire for people to finally do things that they've always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've got emails from people who are applying to MFA and PhD programs who are, you know, in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, I've gotten all kinds of correspondence and DMs and emails from people about how this book 
help them finish the thing they had been trying to finish. And there is no greater reward than that. Do you know what I mean? Um, I do. Because sometimes I get to read those projects after they've been put out into the world. And it is a debut is a really special thing. But, you know, the people who come back for a second book and a third book and a fourth book and just keep doing the work and keep doing the work and keep building community. One of the things that I love about how we do it is just the range of voices that you have. You went back, you found an old interview with Ernest Gaines that's in here. There's a newer piece with Barry Jenkins and Morgan Jerkins that I love. There's an essay from Jacqueline Woodson and something from Tiare Jones. I mean, you run the gamut. There's a really terrific piece from Rita Dove. (laughs) When did you sit down and figure out what this was going to feel like? Because this is a craft book, yes, but it's not quite here are the rules. It's not, this is what you should, it's more, this is my experience. This is what I believe. This is where I want to see what you can do with a piece of information I've given you. Yeah, when, when, um, when Hurston Wright and, and Howard University, who's also a partner in this, contacted me, they asked me if I would be interested in doing this and the level at which I would be interested. Uh, I told them, you know, you're not going to put a book together and then put my name on it. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> I don't know what decisions you're going to make. So I, if I'm going to be in it, I'm going to be very deep in it. And I was happy to have their administrative care as I was deciding what this book would be about. But I think I scared them to death because what we did was we put together a list of names. I said, let's reach out to these people and see if they have an essay. Let's see if they have something lying around or something willing to write. And when they reached out, they said, but what about structure? What about form? How do we know who to ask what for? And I said, you got to trust me. (laughs) You have to trust that Black writing is so diverse that when you reach out to Black writers, you will get back submissions that are diverse. And uh, I believe that about Black writing. I believe that it is not the way we stereotype it, that it is about everything uh, and by Black people, showing you that Black people are about everything. Do you know what I mean? I do. Once we got the pieces back, that's when I began envisioning what the book would look like. I organized this book the same way I write my poems, stresses my students out. (laughs) Wait, what do you mean it stresses your students out? Well, obviously, when I'm teaching, part of what I'm teaching is my own poetics, which is why it's a good thing for my students to have other teachers. <laughs> you know, they want, uh, ultimately, when we have artist teachers, what we're getting is the, the, the artistic philosophy of that person that's standing in front of us. Here's what I think would work. Here's how I would go about it. And you want a variety of that from different people because you're not sure that what works for Jericho Brown will necessarily work for you. That's why we need books like Who We Do It, How We Do It. We need How We Do It because then you get that variety. Do you understand what I mean? I do. And when I'm writing my poems, I think if I got seven good lines, I don't care if I wrote all seven of them in seven different years. If I have seven good lines, I should be able to put those seven good lines on the same sheet of paper. And then work toward making that a poem. Do you see what I mean? 
Yes. And that stresses my students out. <laughs> okay. Yes. I, and yes, as a student, I could see that. Wait a minute. What do you mean I'm supposed to give it years and just let the work shape the work? Yeah, I can. Yes. But I, can I that. Really believe that our writing, I believe this about um, every genre, but I definitely believe it about poetry, that poetry is at its best when it comes from your subconscious. How do you get at your subconscious? You got to let it go. Mm -hmm. You can't try to hammer it down. You can't try to push it. You got to have the dream. Do you know what I mean? Your subconscious arrives only in your dreams. And poetry is your dream knowledge. You know what I mean? And so part of what I do when I write my poems is I look at what things I've said over a course of time and what they have in common. And I notice, oh, I have these 17 snippets about my mom. And I put those 17 snippets about my mom that I've written over the last four years on a Microsoft Word document. And I start moving stuff around and I end up with a poem about my mom that I did not expect to write. As opposed to sitting down and saying, and now I'm going to write about my mom. In which case, I end up with a Hallmark card. I don't end up with a poem about my mom. If you sit down with intentions, then you end up trying to write a speech. You already know what you got to say. But if you sit down with snippets from here, fragments from there, and you try to put these things together, you can allow the text to speak to you and tell you what it is you have to say. So that's been my um, that's been my way of going about things. And it's definitely how I went about organizing this book. When I got that piece from Rita Dove, who you mentioned, uh, I understood that that piece was going to be a kind of guiding principle for the other pieces that are like it and that they would go in the same section. Now, obviously, in my mind, I'm thinking about things like form. I'm thinking about things like voice. I'm thinking about tone. I'm thinking about characterization. I'm thinking about all of these things that you mm -hmm. learn. Uh, but I don't want to get at that in that way because you've already seen that in every other craft book you've ever read. Right. I really wanted essays, ultimately, that are about the life of the writer and how those things, how craft and form and characterization and tone and, and metaphor, how all of those things actually amount to what we are juggling in our heads all day, every day, as we tuck our kids in for bed at night, as we're looking at avocados in the grocery store. And so really the spirit, I believe that the spirit of this book is not so much, oh, how do I write this? How do I make a metaphor? It's how do I understand metaphor while I'm driving <laughs> in right. traffic? How do I understand metaphor while I'm cussing out the guy in front of me who won't turn? Do you know? <laughs> uh, because that's really what it's about. It's about if you live the life of the writer, you will end up with writing. Natasha Trethewey and Angela Flournoy both have standout essays. I mean, all of the pieces, Ralph Eubanks. I mean, there's so much rich work in how we do it. But Trethewey and Flournoy's pieces specifically I mean, Angela's wrestling with grief and pulls in Virginia Woolf into the lighthouse and language and how we absorb that. And Natasha is going over some of what she's talked about, certainly in her memoir and whatnot, but how metaphor for her started really early. And yeah. this is how she ultimately becomes, I mean, she would argue that it's partially how she became a poet, right? Is the, the love of metaphor and the understanding of metaphor came first. And both of those pieces, to me, make poetry feel a little more accessible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, and Angela obviously writes prose and Natasha goes back and forth between poetry and prose, but 
especially with poetry, there is this sort of presumption that you need a degree or mm-hmm. you must understand. And I was taught, you know, Thanatopsis as a teenager and it was not for me. And it took me a while to come to poetry in a different way because I didn't know who was doing the interesting work. It was being taught to me in a very specific way. And I was like, I, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. This is not for me. But as an adult, oh, I cannot get enough of it. I mean, the amount of time that I got to spend with Dwayne Betts and Terrence Hayes and your backlist and, you know, Rita Dove's collected poems, all of these things, Tracy K. Smith. I mean, you get to really sit with this really rich work. And now that I've read the essays and how we do it, I'm also seeing their work slightly differently because I have a little bit of different insight. And I'm hoping we could start with musicality because that's something that has shot through your work as well, your early work. And it's something that many of the writers started. I mean, you put, you put it at the front of the book for a reason, right? Musical mm-hmm. rhetoric, musicality. And how did you know that was what you want? Was it the essays that told you that's what you wanted? Or was it just, we have to start with the language, we have to start with the cadence, we have to start with how we tell story? I knew when I read it. Can I read you a passage? Is that yes, okay? please. I read this uh, essay, which I think is so beautiful by Daniel Black, um, Rhythm in Writing. It's the first, it's the very first essay in the book. I love Daniel's writing. Um, he has a, a brand new book of essays called Black on Black, which I think is a, a brilliant title considering the fact that his name is, is Daniel Black. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I read this, I understood, okay, Here's a section. I'll read you what I'm talking about here. Uh-huh. Some Black writers are known for it. Morrison comes to mind, as do John Edgar Wyman and Sonia Sanchez. Indeed, the 1960s Black arts writers germinated in a time and space where the aesthetic emphasis centered around Black pathos. In other words, these writers meant to translate the beauty of Black idiomatic expression into literary artistic production. And this is the creative achievement contemporary Black writers inherit. However, mimicking it is another story. Mm -hmm. It seems the first secret is in the consciousness of word choice. Check out this sentence. After sunset, Willie Joe and Bessie went to the bedroom and made love. This sentence is okay, but it doesn't carry the rhythm of Black existence. It doesn't show or celebrate the way in which Black folks had to make space for love when the entirety of their existence was subsumed in survival. But this sentence does. After the sun went down, Willie Joe and Bessie made their way to the bedroom and did what they could do. The difference here is several things. First, sunset is what sun does every day. There is nothing particular about it. The sun going down, however, is Black people's hope for a moment of rest. It's the time of day when they get to breathe for a minute. Then, exchanging, went to the bedroom for, made their way, makes all the difference in terms of the rhythm of movement. Made their way implies struggle and difficulty, but it also implies desire and intentionality. It means they wouldn't be denied. And finally, did what they could do does all the work to demonstrate the beauty of Black intimacy within the limitations of bondage and restraint. Writers are often taught, and rightly so, the craft of language economy, the use of as few words as possible to convey a point. 
And generally, this makes for a smoother style and less laborious text. However, sometimes, in order to establish a Black rhythmic pulse in written discourse, one needs more words, more instruments with which to play the symphonic, the symphonic complexity of Black life. Now, let me let me say this. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think that's really great. And it obviously, see how that turns out to be something perfect for this book and for readers to have, for people who want to write to have. But you said a thing, or part of the reason why I wanted to read that is something you said. You talked about how there's a stereotype about poetry. And that stereotype is that you have to have 17 degrees. And that is a stereotype. There's this other stereotype where you got to be a monk. <laughs> like you got to be wise and you have to have a white beard. And then there's another stereotype. You have to be a white girl who has a nose ring and only wears black. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I do. Go. And then there's another stereotype. You have to be a black guy in a beret and sunglasses um, with a leather jacket who, <laughs> who doesn't write anything down, but only knows his poems by heart and shouts them at you. Mm. Do you understand what I mean? Yes. And the truth about poetry is that it's all of that and more. Mm -hmm. What Daniel Black's essay is getting at, it seems to me, is that if you are called to the thing, you are the thing with what you have to give to it. What I love about the essay really is he's saying, make use of your vernacular. Yes. Make use of your language. Make use of what is particular to you. And that is what will make the writing sing. And so many people get turned away from any profession because they feel like they don't look like the idea of the profession. It's 2023. I mean, it's actually 2024. <laughs> when this airs, it will be 2024. <laughs> you know what, I mean? what does a poet look like? Right. And the answer should be your mirror. What does a fiction writer look like? Your mirror. What does a memoirist look like? Your mirror. Do you have a story to tell? Because then it, it probably looks like your mirror. Do you understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it looks like you making use of that which is around you. That doesn't mean you have to tell all your business. That doesn't mean that what you write has to be about you, that you're not making use of imagination to create characters. It does mean that you will be called on from your soul, from your spirit, from your language, from your heart, from your mind individually, and you will be called to bring everything you have, all of your history, every image that's sitting around in your brain, all of your knowledge. And that doesn't, knowledge doesn't look like anything. I'll never forget uh, when I first went to undergraduate school, the guy who had the best grades, the guy who got the biggest scholarship was this very tall guy who was a DJ named Raj. Um, <laughs> okay. And Raj always wore um, very big t-shirts and baggy pants and his hair was a very, very big afro. And nobody understood how a guy that looked like that was also the guy with the best grades because we had decided that knowledge looked like something. Yeah. Give us yeah. That you do not want to be out here deciding that knowledge looks like something. Yeah. Because if you decide that knowledge looks like something, you might end up with it not looking like you. And if you don't have knowledge, you're a dummy. And I just don't believe that about you. <laughs> do, do you right. understand what I'm saying? Oh, I do. So, I do. So, you know, we have to be open about the fact that we do not know what knowledge looks like, and therefore it must look like me. 
I am coming to this page with some power already. And that's what this book is about. And that's what we mean, you and I, as we are talking, that's what we mean about the fact that the book is about life. How do you live the life of a writer? And how do you hold the door open for yourself? Yeah. Right? Like, how do you hold the door open for yourself? And, and at the risk of sounding a little cliched, how do you give yourself permission to do the work that you mm. have been meaning to do? And there is, you know, the whole raising of the children and the day job and everyone has, you know, a million different things going on. But one of the things that I really appreciate about the essays that you've put together in How We Do It is that everything is possible. And that's also a piece of what you were saying when you introduced Rita Dove at the National Book Awards this year. You also said, hey, reading just gave me the sense of what was possible. And that tiny piece can be enough. Or maybe you just read the book multiple times, build a community, and then 10 years from now you do something. All we're saying is there's opportunity. Yeah, right? well, the, yeah and not just that. I mean, you know, this is, I've, I, obviously, I want to sell my book on this show. Yeah. But, uh, all of my books, all four. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I think is important to say that this moment allows us to say is, mm -hmm. you cannot take advantage of an opportunity if you do not know that opportunity exists. Yes. You have to know what the options are. And people listening to this show, you, as a matter of fact, me, I know that I have a job where when I tell people what I do for a living, mm -hmm. they are confused because they didn't know it was an option. What do you do? I'm a poet. That's not an option. That's an option. I could have done that. Somebody driving their car, listening to this or sitting, you know, washing dishes, listening to this is thinking about how like, oh, that happens to me all the time. I do something that people don't think of as an option because somewhere along the way, we got this idea that there were two options and they were lawyer and doctor. So, and if you were born after a certain year, you can add engineer, I guess. Do you, do you understand? As if, and what's interesting about that is we pretend we know what a lawyer does all day. Mm -hmm. so when, I, when I tell people I'm a poet, they're like, what do you do all day? What does an engineer do all day? Do you know? Because I don't. Nobody knows what the engineers. Do you understand? <laughs> I know what this bookseller does on any given day. Let's put it that way. Right, <laughs> That's pretty right. much what I know. Right, and it changes right. day to day, but I I I I pretty much know what a bookseller does. That's right. <laughs> That's what we know. And, and so therefore, there has to be more openness about what the options are. And so about that openness about what the options are in many communities has yet to transcend race, has yet to transcend gender, has yet to transcend all sorts of things that that should transcend since it is about knowledge. Can anybody be a bookseller? I think lots of people can. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, everybody can't be a basketball player, but that's an option to know about. Do you understand what I mean? You were involved in politics before you started writing poetry full-time. Do I have that timeline correct? You were a spokesperson for the mayor of New Orleans? Writer for the mayor of New Orleans. Uh, it's what I did when I lived in New Orleans. Okay. Uh, I, I went to undergrad in New Orleans, and the first job I got 
was as a title that I, I never told anybody. And I'm going to tell you, it's a, sort of a secret. My first title working for the mayor was junior writer. I remember they gave me cards. Oh. <laughs> and they, they, were, they, they really thought I would be so excited and so happy. They gave me this whole, you know, box of cards. Yeah. Your writer. And I threw them away. Who am I going to give a card to? It says junior writer. That is not. <laughs> and uh, eventually, because of ultimately, because of some underhandedness on my part and because of people changing jobs, I became very quickly the speechwriter for the I was very <laughs> okay. 23 years old, actually, um, speechwriter for the mayor. And because I could write and because I, fo- I loved New Orleans. I was about to say because I followed city government, but that's not true. The truth is, I love New Orleans enough to be able to write these speeches whenever anything would come up, um, which was a wonderful training ground for me uh, because it taught me about deadline. I mean, it wasn't the only thing I was writing. I worked in the press office for the mm-hmm. mayor, writing press releases. I wrote a column, a weekly column for Louisiana Weekly that was ghost written by me on the behalf of the mayor. I wrote all kinds of things while I was there, but I learned a lot about how to be organized, how to keep a deadline, what works mm-hmm. when you're writing, what makes for emotion when you're writing, what makes people go vote when you're writing. <laughs> um, those are the kinds of things that I learned to do. And I also think that there's something about that that has a lot to do with why I compose my poems the way I do um, and why I'm able to find discovery. People are always wondering what the hell you're talking about when you say, you discover the poem as you write it. Uh, one of the things that I do when I write a poem is I put everything I know at the top, you know, um, and you know this, Miwa, when we're writing a press release, or you're doing a media advisory, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what, when, where, and how. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, just, just give me the tea real quick at the top. And when I'm writing a poem, I say everything in the first two or three lines that I know. Usually when people are writing a poem, they're trying to hold back. They're like, oh, wait, let me wait till the end to say the thing that I got to say. No, I say everything I know at the beginning. And then I say, push Jericho. Where are you going to go? What's next? What can you find out? That's what I'm interested in um, when I'm writing. Because also you do have some killer closing lines. I mean, I get both with you. I have spent some time with your work and I know when I'm reading you, but I also know you're not putting everything up front and that I have to sit and be patient and watch where we're going. I appreciate that. And I I have to say, if I have killer closing lines, it's only because I didn't think of them in advance. Right. And they are killer. If they are, I appreciate, I, you do not know, that is, I'm going to call my friends and tell them you said that to me. Feel so, free. It's going to be in the show, too. <laughs> I recently had a poem come out in the Atlantic, and I was somewhere giving a reading. I was, you know, out of town, and we, we were talking, and some we were talking about, you know, good things will happen. And I was like, you know, good things happen. I was like, I just got a poem in the Atlantic, and I was really excited about this. And I'm really excited. Now that I have the magazine, I'm really excited because Frederick Douglass is on the, the cover. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's one of the poem in the Atlantic. And I remember the students in that room saying to me very directly, Jericho, you have a Pulitzer Prize. Why do you care that you get a poem in the Atlantic? And I'm like, I always wanted, I'm, I'm 47 years old. It's not over. Right, right. I expect to be pleased. 
<laughs> I expect to be delighted. I, I, I had the expectation that I would be pleased and delighted and it doesn't go away. There is no ultimate pleasure. Right. You know what I mean? I do. I do. And part of it too, for me, is occasionally I'll hear people say, well, I only like to read a certain kind of thing and I want to feel a certain kind of way or I want, they, they're, they're coming into reading with very specific, I don't want to say agendas, but there is an expectation on the part of the reader. And, and there are times where I'm that way too. I just, as a bookseller, my world is a little bigger than that. And I end up reading things that meh, maybe I wasn't planning on reading. And sometimes I'm so pleasantly surprised. And sometimes I know I'm done at 30 pages and everyone's great and that's good. And there will be a reader for that thing. It's just not me. And to be able to be surprised and delighted, especially surprised, surprise sometimes can be hard <laughs> no. mm -hmm. to have that ability and to hold it tight, I think is really important. And it's not something we should leave behind when we're younger, right? Like it's something that we should absolutely carry through. Like there's so many poets I haven't read yet. I mean, there are a lot of poets I like, please don't misunderstand me, but like finding a new poet is really great. And you get that really solid collection and your head explodes and then you move on to the next thing. And it's really, it's fun. It's fun. And sometimes the topics are not the easiest topics, but the language and the spirit of the thing and the physical movement on the page, right? I remember the first time, well, maybe I don't remember the first time because I cried through the whole first time, but I definitely remember the second time because I think I saw it 17 times in theaters. But I remember when I first saw the movie Moonlight, Barry Jenkins's Moonlight. Oh, that movie is spectacular. Included in this book, by the way. Yes. Um, great interview with him and Morgan, Morgan Jerkins. That was very important to me to include. I actually saw that. It happened live in front of me. Oh, good. Okay. Um, I saw it while I was, I used to be the poetry editor for the Believer magazine that was having their, their festival. And during their festival, that was one of the events. So years later, here's this opportunity for me to put this book together. And of course, one of the first thing I think about is this conversation I saw with Barry Jenkins and Morgan Jerkins, which you learn a lot from about how to make a film. Really, what I learned from that movie, Moonlight, was that it was not over. There would be a new way for me to all, I mean, I think about this, uh, the first time I saw Parasite, it's mm -hmm. like, oh, a movie can do that? Yep. When I saw Moonlight, I was like, oh, this can happen? You know, my favorite films, once you have your favorite films, you turn 40, you think that's your favorite film. Right. right. For the rest of your life. But there's, this is, I mean, experience, man, is something mm -hmm. else. There will always be something to expand the thing you think you know everything about. And the first time I saw Parasite, I was so caught up in just my excitement about the movie. I mean, the storytelling was fantastic. The visuals were great. I was just blown away. The second time I saw it, I was overwhelmed by grief. Yeah. Talk about that. And to, and to really walk into the same, and I saw it in the big screen twice because I was just sort of testing a theory I had. And my response the second time really surprised me. And it's not just because I knew the beats of the story. It's because I was able to sit with what the story is actually about. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. pain and that poverty. 
Yeah. And the expectation of moving Bye. up class-wise, right, and survival and all of it, it was just, I mean, sure, you get the laughs and and the sort of snappy dialogue and everything else, but at the same time, underneath it all is this undercurrent of sorrow. Gorgeous, man. It's amazing. Have you seen American fiction yet? I have not yet. But, you know, I think I need to make that happen for myself. Maybe somebody listening to this will take me to a movie. Maybe they'll take me to see American fiction. We'll oh, see. It's so good. You know, because pleasure's not over. So I'm, you know, I could have I can still have a great date. <laughs> I highly recommend that. I highly I have recommend not that. had my best date yet. <laughs> see? There's so much to look forward to. There's, there's so, so much to look forward to. When you were putting together how we do it though, did you find that your own process was changing a little bit or being influenced by what you were reading because you're sitting pretty tightly with this work. And that Barry Jenkins interview with Morgan Jerkins is really terrific. It is so good, that piece. But did you find anything sort of seeping in to your thinking? Yeah. I mean, it's it's actually difficult for me to narrow that down. Okay. I'm honest with you, I would have a list of examples so long. Afar Michael Weaver is in this book. Uh, one of the things that he talks about is the making of the bop, a form that invented. By the time I was putting this book together, I had already invented a form. But because of what he was saying about it, I was like, I need to go write some more duplexes with this in mind. So I, I really did make more poems <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. because of this book, you know, and because of my reading, my reading of this book and how people are talking about how you get things done. I really, in particular, love the pieces by Tiara Jones and Tanya. Yes. Part of the reason why I love those pieces in particular is that they are daily. You mm -hmm. know, the way they're written is, on Monday, I did this and thought about that. On Tuesday, I did this and thought about that. On Wednesday, I saw my mom, so I did this. And that made me think about that. It made me very conscious of my life and how... Uh, my life is a life of a writer and I can attune that life even further. Mm -hmm. Things such that, oh, my life is really organized around the fact that I have to get writing done. And I, I think the other thing about those two pieces in particular, and definitely that, that piece from Rita Dove, is the idea that anytime I get writing done is time I get, get writing done, even if it's 10 minutes. People need to know this, and I'm so happy to be on this particular podcast because I think there are people who need to remember or be either be reminded of or, or learn this one thing that I have to say. Okay. All writing is exercise. One of my teachers, <laughs> who I had a very interesting love-hate relationship with, one of my teachers, his name was um, Tony Hoagland. He used to say, all writing is muscular. And by that, what he meant was all writing is exercise. Even when you're done with a poem, you're practicing finishing a poem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So since it's all exercise, you know, when you go in the gym, you don't expect to pick up the 50 pound weight if you've never picked up the 30 pound weight. Do you see what I mean? You yes. don't expect to pick up the 30 pound weight if you've never picked up the 20 pound weight. Your expectation is. Oh, I, I'm not there yet. You also don't expect to go to the gym for the first time and walk out of the gym 
fine. You do not, <laughs> you do not think, oh, now I'm going to be wearing stuff where I just show all of my body because I think I'm so fine. If you didn't think you were fine before you went in that gym, you're not going to suddenly think it when you come out. Now, you probably were fine, but you didn't think it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so my, my idea about writing is, even if you write, and this is sort of maybe my challenge, it's definitely my challenge to my students, and, and we can make it my challenge to, to your listeners. If you find a way to write every day for 10 minutes, mm-hmm. you have to try the morning instead of the night, because if you do the night, then you'll go to sleep without doing it. But if you find, if, I mean, and I mean a literal timer where you say whatever it is that you have to say for 10 minutes on a piece of paper. Don't try to make a poem. Don't try to write a story. Just write for 10 minutes. If for those 10 minutes you are working on a poem, if for those 10 minutes you are working on a novel, 10 is 10 will do it. If you do 10 minutes for 30 days, it is my promise to you that you will find 15. You will find 30. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before you know it, be writing every day like I do for two hours. Right. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? And I feel like if I can give a film, you know, I love movies. If I can give a movie two hours of my life, I can give myself two hours of my life. It's really important that we remember how good we are. We're actually very, people think we're horrible. We're so good. When it's time for us to pick up our kids from daycare, we're there. Mm-hmm. It's time for us to be at a doctor's appointment. We're 10 minutes late, but we're there. When it's time to go to work at our job, whether we love our job or not, here we are. I'm at work. Where's my paycheck? Do you understand what I'm saying? How is it that we can show up for everyone else and for everything else, but we do not want to show up for ourselves? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? And I'm here to tell you absolutely nothing is wrong with you. You are as important as all of those other appointments. You are as important. I was telling you now, just now, uh, before we started recording, I was telling you how, you know, I have somehow um, become a person who is a part of organizations where this time of year is a series of toy drives, food drives, like it's all kind of Sunday drives, long drives, short drives. I'm just always on a drive. Do you know what I mean? And I don't miss any of that. You know, when I show up to somebody's house for a party during this season, you know what I have with me? A bottle of wine. Right. Because that's what you do when you show up to somebody's house. Where's my bottle of wine for me? When do I show up for Jericho Brown? And this is the question. Like, if you want to write, that's the question you have to ask ask yourself. You have to say, when am I going to be able to put myself first? What's wrong with me? Why have I decided that these things are more important than me? And then the, I, and the reason you got to answer that question is because the answer is they're not more important. Mm-hmm. You're actually the most important person in your life. That's very hard. And that's difficult. I hate saying that because, you know, now we get into controversy and we get into controversy because people have kids and people feel like my child is the most important person in my life. And you, you're welcome to that. But your child is going to move out of your house. <laughs> well, and I'm thinking of all of the children of poets from the 60s and 70s who have had lots to say about that experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, you and I can let people decide on that front on their own. I think it's more <laughs> important. But 
Part of my question for you, though, is when did you give yourself permission to pursue writing full-time and not... I mean, there are ways to be a writer in the world that do not involve creating books or poems or stories that get published in magazines. I mean, people do this kind of stuff for a living. But for you, I mean, you went back to school a little bit later. You didn't go straight to graduate school, right? Do I have that right? Yes and no. I didn't go to graduate school uh, that first, I think that first year out of school, I did not go to school. And then after that, I wasn't in a program, but I knew I had interest in poetry and working a nine to five job. Um, which I'm so happy I had the experience of having and having at such a young age is I noticed that people did this thing. My parents weren't these people, but people did this thing, which I thought was amazing. People would leave work and they would go to yoga. <laughs> they would go to the gym or they would go on Thursday night. People would leave work and go to their salsa dancing class. Mm -hmm. you, like people had interest were outside of work pursuing those interests. They had hobbies. And I was like, what the hell is a hobby? You know, this was completely, I was, I'm from such a working class. I mean, really son of some class family, family of, and even in my extended family, the people who are my forebears, you know, my mother, my father, my aunts and uncles, you know, when they weren't working, they were too tired to do anything at rice. Because when they were working, they were working with their hand. You know, my my aunt, <laughs> my aunt and on, on one side and my cousin on the other side, you know, they've spent most of their adult lives driving a forklift. I mean, after you drive a forklift, you might not feel like going to your salsa dancing class. Do you know what I mean? So I, I had this desk job and everybody was really excited in my family. Like, oh, wait, so you just sit? <laughs> you know what I mean? I had this desk job and having this desk job meant like I could have a hobby. And the, the thing that I had always done, the thing that I had always been interested in was poetry. So I started taking classes. Okay. Uh, because there were night classes that you could take at 6 p.m. that would go from, you know, 6 to 7.30 or 6 to 9 o'clock. I would drive to UNO, University of New Orleans, where I eventually got my MFA and, and take these classes. And because I was taking classes, I said, wait, why am I just taking classes? <laughs> if I could take classes and that leads to a degree, I should just get the degree, you know? So I ended up taking classes for what I thought was my hobby, but knew was my life. We knew was the spirit of my life and knew that that was the thing I love to do, my passion, you know? Which brings me to the form you invented, the duplex, yeah, yeah. which you mentioned it in conjunction. Would you explain what a bop is before we go to duplex? Because I think there might be some listeners. I wasn't really familiar until... I was reading, and I had to go do my little down the rabbit hole thing to figure it out. But can we talk about a bop for a second? And then I want to bring in sonnets and duplex and, and yeah, we can talk that. about a bop, but we have to talk about sonnets because sonnet the sonnet is the form everybody knows exists. You know, if we say Villanelle, if we say Pantum, even if we say Sestina, people kind of look at us crazy. Like, what are those things, and why are you talking about them to me? There is googling involved. <laughs> there is googling involved. <laughs> But somehow or another, if you say sonnet, mm -hmm. people know you mean poem. Many people even know that you mean 14 lines. Like somehow or another, they got that down. They sonnet, people think Shakespeare. 
you know, they they are able to do that. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you say, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? People know you are reciting a line of a poem. Mm-hmm. They imagine, I bet that's a sonnet. <laughs> that's from a sonnet. So because that happened, because forms were invented by human beings, as old as time can tell, you know, the huzzle is a form, for instance, invented, you know, in BC times, uh, I think like 6th century BC, as a matter of fact, because those forms exist, we imagine that there was a day that that stopped happening and it didn't stop happening. Poets always have been and always will be. Uh, there are poets now inventing forms. Mm-hmm. Those forms is a form invented by a Father Michael Weaver called the Bop. And the Bop ultimately is a poem with a repeated line that comes from a song. Right. Um, there's a Bop in my new book, which makes use of a Fleetwood Mac song. Tell me lies. <laughs> Um, uh, and it's ultimately you 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 repeat that line uh, in the poem at certain points in the poem, and that's what makes the poem a bop. I never thought, Mila, that I would be a person who invented a form. Okay. Uh, I always knew I would write formal poems just because that's I learned to do it, and mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. I'm interested in form. I'm interested in music. I'm interested mm-hmm. in the sounds of language. I'm interested in the fact that if something rhymes, then you remember it better. If something rhymes, you sort of want, you almost want to memorize it because the rhyme helps you know what comes next. It's really funny to say this on this mm-hmm. show, but when um, when Terrence Hayes invented the golden shovel, you know, Jory Graham around that time yep. also, the form, you know, forms were getting invented off of Michael Weaver inventing the Bob, many forms um, recently. Um, have been invented, and many of them by Black poets. And um, I mean, many not by Black poets, but many, many of the forms that people are sort of experimenting with in these days have been invented by Black poets. And I remember very distinctly thinking, oh, wow, look who's got time on their hands. (laughs) Jericho. (laughs) I was like, I'm a poetry nerd. But like, mm-hmm. how big a poetry nerd do you have to be to invent a form? Jesus Christ, give these people a life. Do you understand? Like, really? Yeah. I would roll, you know, I would read these poems and I would try to write in these forms. You know, uh, my last book, for instance, does have a golden shovel in it that I have been working on for a little while, you know. And I would write in these forms because I'm a part of the community. But I never thought to invent a form because I actually thought inventing a form was the nerdiest thing ever and really strange. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I found myself in 2018 inventing this form called uh-huh. the Duplex. Okay. And the Duplex is a huzzle, a sonnet, mm-hmm. and a blues poem all in one. Yep. I see it as all of those things at once. I do not think that it's more one thing than the other. I do not think that it is a sonnet with the elements of these other. Th- I don't think that. I think it is those things. And because it is those three things, that's mm-hmm. what it's the Duplex. The reason I think that is because I know that I am not any percent black or any percent Southern or any percent my mother's son. I am 100 percent all those things. And those things are not at war. My spiritual beliefs are actually not sitting around having a fight with my sexuality. I'm so glad to tell your listeners that is possible for you. Yes, (laughs) Yes, it is. 
It you know is. what I'm saying? You can have both and you can have them 100%. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make a poem that was 100% what people uh, think of me. You know, when I meet people, I, I seem to them a bit of a mutt. I'm sort of a mystery. How is this? I remember the first time I went at one point when I was in San Diego, I was in a group of friends and one of my friends said, blah, 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 Dr. Brown. And another friend said, why'd you call him doctor? And my other friend said, oh, he has a PhD. And the other friend said, no, he doesn't. What? Fathom it. They couldn't put it together. How would I have a PhD? They had probably just played cards with me. If you play spades with me, I don't seem like a person with a PhD, I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is good to know. That is good to know. <laughs> but again, I mean, you know, ultimately, this turns out to be the theme of our show today, right? You know, knowledge looks like us. Knowledge, right. knowledge looks like the mirror. And so I wanted to make a form that showed that, showed all of these facets of form all at once. I had been thinking about this in my head. But not thinking of it as a form, I had been thinking, I read this uh, book by Nikki Finney and the, the epigraph to the book was Repetition is Holy, which is a quote from A.J. Burdell. And I was like, oh, that's so beautiful. It really spoke to me because I believed that. It was just so beautiful to hear that made into a sentence, articulated that way. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I could make a poem that is only repetition. And that had been in my mind probably for about 10 years. You know what I'm saying? Like, if I could make a poem that's just repetition. And, I wonder if, you know, that's what poets, in case you want to know what poets are doing, poets are in, you know, in the grocery store looking at bananas, but they're looking at bananas thinking, maybe I should end with an abstraction. Do you know what I'm saying? Maybe it's a good idea for me to put a list right there because we're holding our poems in our head and we're writing them throughout the day as we move around, you know? And so I would, can I have a poem that's repetition only? Repetition, though, it is how we learn, mm-hmm. right? Like the act of, I mean, as you're studying poetry, right, you are looking at the work that's come before you and challenging yourself or challenging your students in this case at this mm-hmm. point, saying, I've seen what's come before. I'm going to see if I can do that form. Yeah. And if yeah. that form ultimately doesn't work for me, I'm just going to make a new form entirely. Right. 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 It's a living thing. Poetry is a living thing. Writing an essay is a, it's a living, an essay is a living thing, a short story. And not all of these things have their own form of life. And with that comes community. I mean, all of the things you've been talking about in this episode all come back to the fact that you're so grounded in community. Yeah. Well, I hope so. Yeah. And making community. And this book is a piece of that, though. I'm so happy to know that readers are coming to it and picking it up and making their own community wherever they might be. I think that's hugely important. Different forms call out to different people too. Talk about the sign it, but my friend, Sean Hill, the poet, Sean Hill, he's been writing villanelles his entire life. And for whatever yeah. reason, he can't get enough of villanelles. My friend, Tracy K. Smith, the poet, Tracy K. Smith, I've sat next to her while she's done it. Tracy K. Smith will spit out a sestina. She thinks writing a sestina is easy. She thinks it's nothing to do. Can I read you a duplex? I'll show you. Yes, please. I would really, I I think folks need to hear this, but I'm having a moment where she can spit. I mean, we know Tracy K. Smith is brilliant, but spitting out a Sestina. Tracy and I went to Cave Canem together, a workshop that was uh, founded in, I think, 96 by Toy Derekite and Cornelius Edie. We were there together. You know, when you're there, it's, 
It's a lot of fun, but it's work. Yeah. yeah, you yeah. Write a poem every day that you are there. And when you write that poem, people don't understand. It's one thing to tell a person. I mean, that's difficult enough. I got to write a poem every day. Mm-hmm. After you write the poem every day, you have a workshop on that poem with people like Sonia Sanchez, Michael Harper, Harriet Mullen. Those were my teachers. Yep. I was at Kevin Canham, you know, which is also not so easy, you know, right. and they they don't play with you. Do you know what I mean? They yes. want you to be good at what you do. I'll read you a duplex. Please. Duplex. I begin with love, hoping to end there. I don't want to leave a messy corpse. I don't want to leave a messy corpse full of medicines that turn in the sun. Some of my medicines turn in the sun. Some of us don't need hell to be good. Those who need most need hell to be good. What are the symptoms of your sickness? Here is one symptom of my sickness. Men who love me are men who miss me. Men who leave me are men who miss me in the dream where I am an island. In the dream where I am an island, I grow green with hope. I'd like to end there. So there's that poem. I love that piece. I really, really love that piece. I know you're teaching and I know you do a lot of volunteer work and everything else, but we're having a moment. Philip B. Williams has a novel coming out in February called My Ours. God. And I hope you are ready. Kavyai Akbar has a, mo- a novel coming in January called Martyr. Sophia Sinclair, who's that collection, Cannibal, is one of my favorites, and I was late to it. I will continue to own that. But her memoir, um, there's so many writers who have done really interesting, longer-form prose pieces, let's call them. Might you be working? I mean, Natasha Trethway has written memoirs, and Tracy K. Smith has written memoirs, and I'm just wondering if maybe you might someday play with a new form. Oh, yeah, sure. Of course, I'm working on a screenplay. I'm working on okay. Things will come out. You know, poetry is my first language. Poetry is uh, hard to get away from. And sometimes when I'm working on other stuff, it's uh, difficult. It's more difficult for me to, to concentrate on that stuff without getting distracted by a poem, quite honestly. And I think that stuff happens slower because I want the poems to happen faster. But it's it's going down. It'll happen. I just, um, I'm not sure what it'll look like just yet, but I'm looking forward to getting it done. I am looking forward to that. I always get excited when I see your byline somewhere, so I can be patient. I'll sit quietly until, well, relatively quietly. Some good, you know, I've had pieces in the New York Times. I have this mm-hmm. piece about parades and about uh, making love. <laughs> All over the world, there are there are pieces of prose that I've written that people. There's this essay about Langston Hughes in this poem called "Suicide's Note," which is one of my favorite poems uh, that exists online. I'm thinking about putting those things together and writing some new stuff to make for a book of prose that will partially be memoir. And I'm looking forward to that. If you saw what my workspace looks right now, looks like, you would say, "Oh yeah, he's getting something done." It's co- yeah. Oh, I don't doubt that you're doing the. I mean, I have a vague idea of what poets do, and I am pretty sure that <laughs> well, when I we'll finish, get something. When I, when I whatever I finish in a different genre, you just have to have me back on the show. Oh, please, 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 please. We can do this all the time. 
We can always, always do this. Jerrica Brown, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. How We Do It is out now. And certainly, if you haven't read the tradition, if you haven't read, please, if you haven't read the New Testament, well, add those to your TBR list too. Thanks again, Jerrica. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.